Welcome to the Acme Conversations podcast, where we explore the world of the moving image and its connections to politics, society, culture, and art. This is a recording of a live event, and it may reference visual material. You can view this on our YouTube channel. tonight um, on the unceded land of the Kulin Nations and pay my respects to the elders past and present and emerging. Um, tonight is very exciting. We've got um, Jessica McCallum and also Philip Brophy joining us. Um, so I thought maybe we'll just introduce you guys as well. Um, Jessica Callum currently works with Matman Entertainment, a Melbourne-founded and leading Australian independent entertainment company. As the head of social media and anime marketing, Jess is responsible for social media strategies and marketing initiatives. She has played an instrumental part in propelling the growth of Matman's um, anime audience and community by de developing effective and engaging campaigns for key products, categories and releases, working alongside peers who are pushing the organisation in exciting new directions, both in the theatrical such as Your Name and A Silent Voice, national anime festivals and direct-to-consumer digital streaming via Anime Lab. Jess is extremely passionate about bringing the latest and greatest anime content to Aussie and New Zealand fans. So welcome, Jessie. Thank you. Um, Philip Brophy curated the first major retrospective of manga artist um, Osamu Katsuka, Tesuka for the gallery, National Gallery of Victoria in 2006. The exhibition tour to the Art Gallery of New South Wales in Sydney and the Asian Art Museum of San Francisco the following year. In 2005, he was commissioned to write 100 anime for the British Film Institute in London. In previous years, he has curated film retrospective programs for the Melbourne International Film Festival on Tesuka and Studio Ghibli. He interviewed Hayao, ha, um, Hayao Miyazaki in Tokyo for the exhibition he created on Japanese and American animation for the Museum of Contemporary Art, Kaboom, in 1993. He has been published extensively in international journals on anime and manga. Welcome. Thank you. Um, yeah, so to kick things off, um, what I guess we'll start with the question of what brought you here. What's your... Um, what's your relationship with anime? Pretty much what you just read out. I yeah. Think. <laughs> <laughs> Great, done. <laughs> relationship with anime uh, yep. for me started at a very young age. Yep. Um, I think maybe year three, I started to get an interest in Japanese culture. Yep. And uh, I remember writing this really fat booklet of <laughs> stuff, why I love Japan. And it got put up in the library and it, it, I just really loved everything about Japan and um, I really got into um, the kinds of anime coming out of Japan and of course um, before school as well watching you know on Cheese TV, Dragon Balls and stuff, um, SBS with Evangelion and um, particularly when um, like I was watching a lot of stuff, I had a friend that um, had a lot of anime so I was watching a lot of stuff um, early on with him like Ninja Scroll and Elfin Lead but uh, the thing that really was great was um, online streaming. So as soon as sort of um, 
I started off with Crunchyroll um, and then when Anime Lab started and I got to be a part of starting that and um, being a part of it, it's really amazing being able to work with um, something you're passionate about. Uh, but yeah, it's so easy to stream. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, sorry, I just kind of... <laughs> Anime is great. <laughs> you know, apart from, you know, like, unlike a lot of um, TV shows that only have like 10 episodes, mm. um, anime has like 70, you know, it's mm. great. Yeah. Uh, what are some of your favourite anime series? Sorry to just randomly throw oh, in a okay. question. I just was really interested. I didn't get to ask it. Um, series? Um, or anything, any works. Um, I'm... Um, I really like um, the Kantai collection at the moment, so yep. that's, and that's what I'll be talking about. So, yep. yeah, that's most in my mind at the moment. Yeah. Yep. So we'll leave that for the presentation. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, great. So I guess I'll start. Um, I guess you're here because of anime and feminism, but I thought before I get into feminism part, I just want to share a little bit about... Um, the cultural context that I was exposed, like how I was exposed to anime. I'm not really, I think, I guess, a classically anime fan, I suppose, but I love anime. Um, that statement itself is potentially a bit alienating for some, but um, growing up in the 90s and early 2000s in Hong Kong, anime wasn't really a subculture. It was very mainstream. Um, my childhood memories kind of consisted of heavily submerging myself in all sorts of Japanese cultures. Um, Hong Kong, as of most parts of East Asia, has been dominating, um, like has seen dominating cultures heavily influenced by Japan during around that decade. So from sort of music to um, food trends to um, fashion and cultural productions, um, Japanese everything was kind of seen as really cool and a sort of culture that was really aspired to. Um, it wasn't necessarily imported either, like it was very much a very hybrid sort of pop culture that I was consuming. Um, and Hong Kong pop cultures in the 90s through to 2000s were, I was really constantly morphing into something that really felt like Japanese. Um, so from sort of manga stores to um, Japanese magazines and, um, you know, going to photo sticker booths after school and to the way that we were dressing in fashion as a teenager um, or even TV game shows um, and the idol culture, um, it was very kind of heavily influenced by Japan. And Japanese expressions even um, to have made it into the language itself. So words like ganbade was it's a really good example of that. You've probably heard that quite a lot in anime, but and I'm not sure if there's actually an English translation to that because it's um, sort of um, captured this this moment of it's almost like the equivalent of saying good luck, but it's not necessarily about good luck. It's kind of about a combination of strength and hard work and and all of that. Um, so while anime was playing on set every single TV channel, I was at the same time consuming J-pop and Japanese dramas. Um, the anime was that I was watching, um, they were all dubbed in Cantonese, and every show was created for mass consumption. And because of this reason, I would probably describe my con consumption of anime most of the time, but 
not always, as passive and through a very mainstream kind of cultural narrative. Access was never an issue for me um, because I never had to seek them um, and it was, they were just simply there. Um, I thought it would be really quite important to clarify my influence and how I got into anime as I think that um, any discussion on popular or subcultures um, context is everything. Um, and it is this kind of everything all the time type of anime consumption that really shaped me as a young girl and as a teenager. Um, I've got memories of watching Cut Capture, Sakura, um, Magical Girl, Doremi and Sailor Moon and many others on television every single day after school. And outside of television I would watch um, a lot of Miyazaki's classics um, such as Kiki's Delivery Service, My Neighbour Totoro, Spirited Away, etc. Um, the environmental themes, um, relatable strong um, and young female characters and sort of mythologies um, about Mother Earth um, and just kind of like this overwhelming female presence in Miyazaki's stories have had a massive, massive impact on my upbringing. And I realise that I'm not using the slideshow. <laughs> um, oh, here you go. Thank you. <laughs> I was like, ah, oh. so I was just, just like, thought about that too. <laughs> just reading that. Um, great. And I believe that I ha can use this. Um, yeah. And then so at the time, they were, they were just anime. Like, I didn't really pick up on the feminist themes, even though um, they all had a really strong female um, character at the centre of every single show that I was watching. Um, and, yeah, they were just passive entertainment for my 10-year-old self. So here's a photo of um, Cardcaptor Sakura um, and Sailor Moon, just a little bit of influence and, you know, spirited away. Um, and I guess, yeah, here we go. Throughout my life, I sort of rewatched Kiki's delivery service for roughly a hundred times. Um, I used to recite um, the Cantonese dialogues with my mum as a kid, which is very cute. Um, mostly <laughs> dialogues between um, the main character, Kiki, and her cat, Juju, in Cantonese. Um, and it was quite interesting we were watching that just leading up to this panel that um, I was so shocked by how similar her life story had eventually kind of played out in mine. And, you know, there's like this kind of story of a 13-year-old girl um, leaving home and um, sort of, I guess, chasing her dreams um, to some extent and realising who she is and then eventually accepting who she is. And it's a classic coming on of age story. Um, but it's really interesting because there's like this particular scene um, and we couldn't find a clip of it, unfortunately, but the scene of her, um, I don't know if how many of you have seen this um, film, um, but there's a classic scene of her getting really depressed um, after meeting um, some new friends and realise that she would never fit in and would never belong to that group because she was different, that she was a witch from a, from a different town. And there was like this sense of um, knowing that she would never fit in and then she got into a really depressed 
state. And um, she only found, and she lost her powers after that. And then it was only after she um, spent some time with her painter friend um, in this image um, and in the woods and sort of had a really candid conversation about being an artist and being different and how sometimes you have to let go in order to find your unique voice, that, um, that she regained her power. And, um, like, of course, I watched this, sh this film so many times before things like that started to play out in my own life and subconsciously sort of just thought, you know, that's just what life is. Um, it wasn't until recently I look at that narrative again and go, oh, actually, there's a lot of um, life lessons to be learned. And I guess a lot of the, um, like for me, I think personally, anime, which I didn't realise at the time because of the cultural context that I grew up in, was that um, anime tend to have this um, narrative that would not, that, that wasn't necessarily for, um, a super young audience, but they, but even, it doesn't matter how old you are. I probably watched Kiki's delivery service for the first time when I was one, because um, it came out in 1989. Um, but there was no age group category that it was accessible for everyone. And so you kind of grow up with this narrative thinking that that is for you because it's very relatable. And so when I became a teenager, um, I started to read lots of manga and fell in love with um, Ayazawa's work. Um, she, um, she's an amazing um, comic artist and subsequently sort of the anime series Nana and Paradise Kiss. Um, this is a screenshot from Nana. Um, these are like stories of dreams romance and sisterhood and moving from the sort of younger, um, I guess, coming off age story, this is so relatable to me at the time that um, that was just, it. again, it's like there's a lot of like seeking dreams and understanding sisterhood and trusting in yourself, that sort of narrative. And for anyone who knows her work, um, her work always has impeccable style, um, heavily influenced by punk fashion trends um, led by Vivian Westwood. <laughs> um, Nana is one of my all-time favourite. It's, it's an unfinished story, um, but it's a story of two young women whose name were both Nana. Um, they live very different lives, um, and they met on the train um, on the way to Tokyo and ended up becoming sort of really good friends and housemates and all the rest of it. One of them is a musician who left her home hometown to pursue her dreams and the other simply followed her childhood boyfriend to the big city um, while discovering that life wasn't as, as easy as she once thought. It's a story of heartbreaks and romance, sisterhood and strength. At this point, I guess, there's really a lot of, um, a bit of a pattern in the anime that I was passively and actively consuming um, in over a decade. Um, strong, independent girls and women forging their own path in life, building strength through balance, always outside of their comfort zones, being challenged, being different. 
Um, as a side note to this, uh, I guess my own path, also sort of leaving home at 16, moved to Australia on my own with a decision that was really nothing more than a, oh, this is horrible, I'm just going to go, <laughs> um, teenage sentiment. Um, but the lessons that I learnt through those stories from, like, prior to the actual move, sort of quite evident in the feminist values that I still have today. Um, there's also a bit of a, a big twist in my um, anime consumption at this point. After moving to Australia because of access, um, my consumption of anime changed completely. I started watching anime in Japanese um, with English subtitles and never in dubs again. And that changes the way that I consume anime altogether because um, depending on the quality of the translation, sometimes it, it just didn't quite work with my sort of, I guess, bilingual brain. Um, so used to consuming anime in a certain way. Um, and as I said before, the context, like the cultural context in which I grew up in um, was probably constantly being influenced by Japanese culture. And so a lot of the dialogues and a lot of the um, cultural um, crews in, in, in anime really resonated with me, I guess, more in Cantonese than it would be in um, English translations. Um, and I, I, I kind of started to notice that some dialogues would be translated in ways that I couldn't understand, um, or that my friends who would be watching the same show would have very different understanding of what that narrative was and certain characters. And so I thought that was quite an interesting um, thing and it changed the way that I consume it altogether. Um, it got me thinking about the importance of a, translations in general, and also B, the context of the story where the story was created as opposed to where it was consumed. Um, my taste in anime also changed from a magical girl kind of vibe to um, dark fantasy, which has been a very male-dominating um, genre for a very long time. And I realised that it's a genre that perhaps has a wider audience um, internationally, and the gender stereotypes somehow, don't know if that's related to the international audience um, aspect of it or not, have changed completely for me. Um, a classic beginner anime like Death Note, for instance, is a good example of this. Um, even though I love it, it's there are times when I'm like, mm, I just don't know. Um, but of course, there are also exceptions like um, you know, from Neogenesis um, Evangelion to Attack on Titan and Psychopaths. Um, I believe I've got a slide for that. There we go. Um, a strong character, if not the strongest in the story, is often a female character. Um, Tsunamori in Psychopaths and also Misaka Ackerman in Attack on Titan. Uh, really great examples of that. So I thought I might just leave you with a couple of provocations, um, and then we've got a clip of the cool Misaka, uh, Mikasa. Um, can Western feminist lens be applied to anime? And my second question is that, um, is there a possibility for 
intersectionality in anime and how? How do I do the... Click, will it just start? I don't, okay, okay. Hold on. Okay, I'm going to talk about hyperfeminization. Um, so let's just go straight into it with um, the Kantai collection, um, which started out as a, um, an online um, game. And in many respects, the online game is very similar to um, early, almost CD ROMs in a sense, um, meaning that the, the narrative, the structure, um, the organisation of information that you have to engage with is very abstracted and very um, cerebral. It's almost kind of statistical. Um, and it's something that's at the base of um, all Japanese card culture, um, whereby you have this card, this kind of stupid-looking card, but then there's this intense amount of um, value in it that uh, can statistically be um, uh, quantified and that that gives you certain levels of occupation and levels of um, energy that allows you to compete and battle. Um, and it's quite amazing watching very, very young Japanese children thoroughly engage um, with intensely complex um, card games that are way beyond my um, comprehension of, of taking in exactly kind of what's happening. 
Um, and the weird thing about um, Kantai Collection is that in some respects it's like a, a, a kind of a kickback to this um, um, earlier form of online game playing which is abstracted. And what I mean by that is that it doesn't have a high degree of mimetic action. It's not realistic. It's not like shoot em up perspectives. It's not kind of grandiose dimensional voids that you become immersed in, like going into the world of gameplay. It's like you're a kind of, um, like a military strategist. So you're kind of outside of things, looking at things and whatnot. Um, and so like this, you know, these are your kind of screen grabs that you're kind of salivating over, um, which is like, it's almost like kind of reading a sports manual of sorts and getting the statistics and weighing things up. Um, and um, I'm outlining that as an introduction to this because that is the core um, drive that engages people with the, and had, has engaged people with the original um, Kantai collection online game. But then there's the issue of the content that actually is um, at stake in this type of gameplay. Um, and coming in 2013, um, uh, there's many historical, cultural uh, layers that are folded into a game like this that comes out at, at, um, at this point in um, Japanese modern history. And the thing is to do with the fact that um, the game is, as I'm sure a lot of you would know, is based on this idea that you're playing with spirits of deceased, predominantly Japanese, but then later on different nationalities, um, military ships from military history. And that these women, these young girls in fact, uh, a couple of them are slightly older, they're all different ages in fact, um, but mostly young girls, um, are embodied beyond their control as the standard thing with anything to do with Japanese anime. You're suddenly walking down the street and suddenly you know, you're carrying the bloodline legacy of three <laughs> um, centuries worth of you know, bloodlust or something like that. Um, and so in the case of this, these young girls have within them the spiritual energy of an actual machine that is part of Japanese military history. Um, this is the, one of the famous characters, Bismarck, which is kind of their, their kind of concession to the German line of um, the Axis, which of course Japan was involved in during the Pacific War and the Second World War. Um, and so you've got that as the content at this point in 2013, right when there's an escalation of um, not so much a return to militaristic patriotic nationalism in Japan, which is always there, um, but just these ways in which particularly um, Article 9 is being um, debated, which is kind of the, relation, the very complex relationship that Japan has with America to do with the constitution of the, well, their constitution, as well as the um, construction and um, organisation of the Japanese self-defence force. So all these things are kind of clouding and sort of, um, not clouding, they're kind of floating like these um, um, levels of atmosphere in Japanese um, culture and society. And then you have this game that then kind of comes out in the middle of it. And of course, two years after um, the tsunami. Um, so my introduction of this in terms of an, a notion of um, hyper-feminisation 
is really to uh, forward the intense complexity by which these um, figures are created, proceed and move on. Um, and the one thing I've noticed myself personally from just you know, watching lots and lots and lots and lots of anime and reading lots of manga over the years is um, the thrill of knowing two things. One, that um, I am a complete nothing and I'm completely insignificant in the powerful world that I'm suddenly kind of confronted in. It's, like, it's not as if I'm watching it because I can see myself in there and I can identify something. It's like, oh my God, this is a complete universe that has no room or space for me whatsoever. And so I'm actually going to find out completely amazing things that I would not have found out if I had chosen, oh, what do I feel like looking at and what should I kind of follow down that feels like me? I like anime because I'm not in it. There's no space for me. And it makes me just then say, okay, Phil, just shut up and just take in this stuff and try and work it out. Um, and that's what... Um, uh, that's the way I would approach the notion of feminism and feminisation and femininity um, and all the ways that that works kind of through um, anime because I'm quite certain that we are all completely knowledgeable of the types of sexism that exists in anime um, and um, also of the kind of, you know, the positive values that exist in anime, um, particularly with this, like, amazing library that goes back decades, right, of like, you know, really the most amazing female characters in any moving image kind of platform at all. Like, you look at anime and then you look over at cinema and you think, boy, you know, like cinema's kind of like, you know, it's kind of, anime is 2017 and cinema's kind of like about 1203, right? <laughs> you know, it's just in terms of like, it churning out these amazing kind of, um, um, not just stereotypes of um, um, female power and things like that, but, you know, really dense, complex psychological dimensions to those characters taking on that power in different ways. Um, not to mention the way that that then exists in a Japanese socio-cultural context whereby you have um, interpretations or modes of consumption by both women and men in different ways to the different levels of those psychological dimensions of that complex, powerful female kind of character. Um, so really, I'm, my, my, my role in the invitation of this is to really, you know, just let us hopefully not forget that, fine, you come in at some level with anime and you think, this is incredible, and then it's like, okay, now, that is just this, like, you know, that's the tip of the iceberg. You know, you can now spend years just kind of going deeper and deeper and getting lost and then coming back out and looking at the world differently and things like that. Um, and, and that works for... Uh, it, it, it works definitely for Judeo-Eurocentric white culture, but it also works with a, a series of other kind of cultures that all kind of, like... Um, uh, attend to that. So it's fascinating hearing the, the Hong Kong interpretation of those shifts in kind of cultural meaning and the Japanese-ness, which then is not a type of Japanese-ness that was originally in Japan. And then you come to Australia, kind of like, you know, and get it all mixed up further. Um, uh, uh, so these are some characters um, from 
the, um, the online kind of card game. And this was like a very unexpected kind of like huge hit. It's actually produced by a company that pretty much didn't make pornography before this, but essentially it was adult-oriented um, online game um, um, titles. Um, and just so we're clear about the pornography kind of like issue on kind of anime, is that um, Akihabara, who I'm sure anyone's been in Japan, they've kind of gone there and everything. So kind of like, you know, in the 60s, into the 70s, even into the 80s, right, that was, it's, they still say it's electric town, right? But pretty much by the 90s, it was porn town. It was kind of a mix of doujinshi, of like kind of fan-based um, materials, but most of that fan-based material was specifically done by fans who were actually selling to a pornographic market. And so um, uh, it's interesting that, um, that that kind of gets sort of kind of missed out in the writings of the history of Akihabara, but like that really the 90s, even into up to like kind of about 2004, pretty much, you know, two out of three anime-looking shops you would go into were essentially pawn shops. And I don't know if you've been into any of them, and particularly if you go upstairs where it gets kind of like sweatier and darker and dirtier and stuff like that. You know, and I've done that a number of times. I'm thinking, all oh, right, this is what my Japanese friends were really talking about, right? I was just kind of on the street level. This is the stuff that they're actually kind of talking even, about. Like certain levels that women aren't allowed to exactly, go to. Exactly, exactly. And it's like, I'm looking up the stairs. How do I get higher up? I've got to find a lift. <laughs> exactly, the lift versus the, um, the stairs. Um, so, and so then, of course, the shift in that is, um, well, it's a mix of moe culture and idol culture, right? Um, particularly post AKB48. Um, uh, and the idea that Akibara was then about um, the idol you can meet, or in a sense, shake hands with, which of course has had um, um, uh, unfortunate situation, which was last year with the, you know, the stabbing of the, of the idol. Um, based on physical proximity at one of the um, meet and greet sessions they've had. So anyway, so this whole idea of um, the kind of that um, um, quite problematic pornographic kind of culture that fuels this kind of dense and very large underbelly <laughs> to anime production, which is, you know, the user-oriented so-called fan-based kind of production of things, a lot of which is fun and innocent, but then there's an actual industry that kind of connects to that. Um, that that's the kind of environment out of which this particular game um, comes from. And uh, the company actually made a, a very deliberate decision to not have highly erotic content in this um, um, gameplay, because they figured, well, let's try this and see if, in fact, we can make more money not being pornographic. And so this is the thing, the anime um, manga culture terrain keeps on shifting all the time. Um, and so they lucked out with this kind of game that you know, ended up kind of like being this bizarre, dry, wet dream of middle-aged Japanese military <laughs> nationalists. Right? And you know, we, we could kind of like laugh at it and sort of put it, put it down for that, but even if that is its target audience, and that's really what they were after, and that's really what is most in this, it does not negate a completely alternative reading of it, of looking at it in positive ways. Right? And so I'm, my whole life is, com I'm completely 100% positive about everything. 
right? So everyone says I'm negative, I'm not. I'm actually really, really positive. And so I can look at an image like this and you know, I could choose to be grossly offended by it and see lots of problems that seem to be pointing at me right in the face there. <laughs> but I can also then flip that and say, well, is there another way of reading this? Right? Is there another way in which there's something there that's not what's just on the surface, right? There's some other context to it. There's, there's kind of some confliction in what's actually kind of happening there. Now, the series became... Sorry, I've gone too far, right? I'm, I'm doing a breeding thing here. So, first off, there was, like, a very set number of characters, right? And, like, pretty much within a year, the characters had all expanded there. I love these kind of mass um, character um, spreads they have with any anime franchise of any sort, right? But it then just gets hysterical, right? Like, you know, it's almost like this self-breeding kind of machine of just all these other characters. And now there's other nations involved. There's all different high, high school levels and whatnot. Some other points about the original kind of card series, right, is that it's kind of um, uh, based on the idea that as you manipulate these um, figurines, these figures, these fem young female women who embody the spirit of these um, historical um, military vessels um, is that then when you send them into battle, what then happens is uh, if you lose, right, which you don't want to do, but what happens is that the clothes of the young girl then gets all torn and broken apart. Right? So it's kind of like this bizarre fetishistic thing where you actually win by losing if you want to go down that scopic kind of sexually violent kind of way, which also is part of the problematic audience for this very kind of series. Right? And this is very similar to you know, when you talk about um, um, Sailor Moon, is that you know, one of the key features in Sailor Moon is the change, is the transformation where the silhouette of the naked kind of like figure is there, which itself is like this bizarre toned down knowing recoupment of what Go Nagai was doing with kind of cutie honey and these sorts of things where the, um, um, the woman would completely go naked, but that was itself a 70s parody of earlier kind of like 50s and early 60s girl manga that fetishised the way in which kind of young girls could dress up as ballerinas predominantly um, and do all these transformations by putting on kind of amazing gowns and things like this, right? So the whole idea of makeup, and that's of course the famous um, 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 katakana English phrase that's used in the original Japanese um, Sailor Moon, which is meku appu kind of thing, right? That's kind of screamed out, which is a pun on um, level up or game up or energy up which is actually in all the early kind of 70s Kamen Rider and Ultraman kind of series, right? But of course, it's a play on the English term putting on makeup, which is kind of a girly kind of thing that's meant to be fantastic and stuff. Anyway, back to this. Okay. Um, let's give some historical kind of context on this, right? This is one of the characters, one of the very popular characters, Yamato, of course, based on the famous battleship Yamato. Um, and when I look at that, one of the things that um, 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 strikes me when I look at these kind of images is the historical density that they have, meaning that on the one hand it looks kind of contemporary and futuristic and very anime, pop and things like this, right? But on the other hand, it actually is intensely traditional and historical, right? And particularly if we just think not what is evidence there, 
but kind of what is actually being energised and dynamically organised within the image itself, which is essentially a body that is being covered in very complex abstracting ways. Right? And this is important in the whole history of the kimono, not to mention most Japanese um, costume design and clothes design, which is it completely negates the body that's in it. Right? Whereas most of us are familiar, if we're looking around what we're wearing, is to the idea that somehow this body is being, you know, this um, clothes item is being made for something to do with the human body. Right? And Japanese clothes design says, well, the clothes are their own entity. Right? The body is its own entity and here is a way in which the two will coexist in parallel dimensions. Right? They don't necessarily fuse in any way. And the complexity of um, what they call mato, which is like the idea of wrapping, of encasing anything, like from packages to um, kimonos to all sorts of things, right, is embedded in this particular approach to designing clothes for the human body. So in the case of Yamato in, in the in, um, Kantai collection, what we've got is kind of a kimono dressing, right, where what she's wearing, which is carrying fragments of the actual armour from the Yamato, right, as well as this bizarre schoolgirl kind of outfit because they're all attending, of course, an academy, right, um, is all part of the signage and tokens that kind of make up that design. Now, the image on the right, right, is by an incredible female artist from the Taisho era that then goes a bit into the um, Showa era. So that's like really from like the turn of the uh, 20th century up right into the 50s. Um, is um, Uremaru Shoen. And um, she specialised, so this is one of her famous works from um, 1911, uh, Snowblown Figures, in this idea of capturing a hyper-feminine instance of a depiction of a female body, but then completely enswathing it in these kind of abstract sensations of movement, of touch, of texture, of sense, right? A lot of the idea of um, these kind of paintings is based on visualising invisible, sensual, um, you know, almost like um, clouds of sense that hover around a human body. Um, and she's very famous. Shawn is, is like one of the most preeminent, uh, um, uh, preeminent. Uh, pre um, painters of this particular female aesthetic and using the bodies to actually be engulfed in this particular kind of sensation. Um, very often using, again, the kind of the void behind. So it's almost like centering everything in on this particular kind of quite tactile um, sensation. Whisping Beauties, um, another famous one, but this is 1938. So we're at the start of the Japanese war and it's kind of its um, uh, incursions into, um, into China. But still you've got this kind of like aesthetic beauty that's being extolled through this. And again, a very straightforward depiction of these two figurines. Um, but then you know, the eroticism of it is completely invisible in a sense. Right? Or it's visible if you kind of hone in on these amazing um, brush strokes that this image doesn't pick up that are done for every single hairline that then fade into the white makeup on, on the neck. Right? Um, 
Now, that kind of aesthetic, this sort of way of a type of hyperfeminization, which is to get a kind of a gendered, sexualized way of conveying sense through a medium that doesn't have that sense, i.e. touch and smell and movement, but using a still image to convey the fact that you cannot represent touch, smell and movement, so you put in a series of complex visual figures and manipulations to let you know that you should now be thinking about touch, sense and movement. Right? So that's anti-mimetic. It's not a visual representation of something. It's setting things up so that when you look at it, it makes you think about these things that actually aren't being shown. Right? And this is an important thing in the whole history of Japanese visual aesthetics. This kind of approach right, um, uh, is probably best then picked up. It's actually, uh, it's most picked up, I think, um, in the 40s and the 50s in um, girls' magazines, and particularly for the paintings and artwork covers um, that were done for this huge explosion of um, um, post-war girl culture um, in, in Japan. But in terms of manga, it comes a little bit later with works like um, uh, Ryoko Kida's um, Rose of Versailles, right? which is, is, is um, uh, Ikeda and also um, uh, Hajio are part of what they call the, um, the 24 group, which is a group of uh, predominantly four female manga, cut, manga artists right, that came of age in that era and then went on to become very famous and very popular female shoujo manga artists that defined the vocabulary of how to actually convey these complex sensual uh, ways of visualising these things that usually all clouded around, sometimes girls in ballet schools, that's a really kind of popular one, right? But also then boys at schools who look extremely feminine, so it's the start of the gender slippage that happens with these um, sorts of um, um, love stories and whatnot. Now, running counter to that is like the male version of that, the male way of thinking, right, you know, how do I visualise and represent a sexy female body in some sense, right? Um, and this is an image from a very famous illustrator um, from the late 70s, but then kind of like peaks majorly um, in the 80s, um, Hajime Soriyama, um, who did this very successful series of sexy robots, right? And I can, I think just about every major 80s Japanese corporation employed him to do illustrations for their product, no matter what the product was, whether it was fishing rods, golf clubs, Maxell um, tape, tape recording machines, anything. They would just get him to do one of these sexy robots with the product kind of nearby and, and their kind of logo. Um, and again, these sorts of... Um, and this, of course, is a take on the famous Marilyn Monroe um, image. So the idea is that um, this is another twist on hyperfeminization, right? But it's kind of very different, of course, from the other things we've seen, but it's something that laterally then feeds into and then percolates again by the time we get to Kantai Collection. So Kantai Collection is kind of like a fusion of these kind of um, quite opposing strands of um, hyperfeminization. And probably um, the, one of the most you know, problematizing figures in manga culture, which is Masamune Shiro, who on the one hand is responsible for like narratively creating some of the most densely um, cryptic political texts about Japanese social structures and corporations and how they work, whilst like just doing babes, 
right? So it's not as if like he separated these two things that like seem like, you know, like I don't know if you've been keeping up with what Shiro does now, but right, he's done these series of art books more than he's done anything to do with um, um, manga, right? And they're like these hyper-real Photoshop, they're all digital images, right? And they're completely pornographic. There's no other way of actually describing them. They're like, you know, sexy cyborgs, naked, that are so human-like, having showers together, right? And then sort of becoming eroticised. So out of taste and respect for the audience, I haven't brought any of those images. Um, we've stuck with an earlier kind of softer version. Um, but something like Appleseed, which is one of his early works, right, very much kind of picks up on this idea of like encapsulating the female form in some way. And again, this is a very ambiguous image, right? On the one sense, it's hypersexist in like the way he particularly renders a cyborgian female figure. But on the other hand, these figures and these characters in his narratives, right, are like super powerful, right? So it's like, okay, do we, do we attribute power to them but not their bodies or do we just give their body, you know, so, I think that these kind of works uh, allow us to um, widen out the discussion, you know, of like, well, okay, that appears to be representing that, but is there, is there some other way to then discuss it so we're not just reading it purely at face value and kind of like reacting against it? Um, so by the time we get to the anime, which comes out in um, 2005, uh, sorry, 2015, um, the ideas that are implicit in the cards narratively are then kind of given sort of um, um, full reign. And particularly even in like um, the, uh, uh, in the Japanese, the use of English katakana kind of words, even like the term autofitto, right? So outfit. So what the, what the girls actually uh, um, encase themselves with is this idea of outfits, which is the physical materialization of the spiritual connection to the lost battleships, right? And the great thing about the anime is that it just takes the abstracted impossibility of the card and then just sort of dumps it in a fantasy kind of world. Oh, yeah, suddenly they're just sailing along the ocean there, right? They've just broken out of school from a class and now they're in a battle kind of thing, right? And so it's not like, how do they get on the ocean? Where are they going? How are they, what, 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 what's happening kind of here? They're just doing it kind of thing, right? Um, and that's a great thing, particularly about this particular animation, because it's like, you know, they've had to figure out, how are we going to translate this card game into something, right? Because there's lots of anime which, of course, is based on card game playing, and, you, you know, they slam it down and the special effects kind of all come out. This hasn't got any of that stuff in it whatsoever. Am I running out of time there? Okay, so I won't talk more about um, military aesthetics. Um, we'll hand it over to you. Okay. Um, yeah, I found what you're talking about really interesting as well because particularly with the younger girls, um, I think, is it that the more powerful the ship, the sort of, um, their design sort of changes and they look more powerful as yep. well. Yep. Um, and then it sort of In makes levels. me think about like more anthropomorphism um, where you sort of have, you know, a lot of companies that are like, we can make anything good if it's a young Japanese or young anime girl. Um, it's sort of like, of uh, you know, Strike Witches, and there was an anime series where um, the girls were soft drinks and they, they'd, yeah, yeah, their yeah. earrings were the little, um, psh, and <laughs> they'd get their magical <laughs> soda powers. <laughs> and, uh, well, Kanto Collection was so popular that um, the new Prius ads, from, well, the Prius mm. ads from last year, 
literally had a set of, I think, about 60 girls, yeah. which was literally each part of the Prius engine. So there was the carburetor girl, there was like the, you know, so you had to know yeah. all those names, but they had a character and done by a range of, I think about eight different um, mm. manga artists, yeah. Yeah, I find, I find it really interesting. I know one of the shows that um, we have on Anime Lab, Wish Upon the Player Days, was sort of a Subaru um, oh, yeah. Magical Girl series. Mm. Uh, but it was really interesting. Um, so I am here to talk about Killer Kill and Keijo, um, two series that I've really enjoyed. Um, and you know, there's a lot of women who are presented in interesting ways. Uh, so I'm keen to talk about it. Um, okay. So first of all, raise your hands if you've seen the following in anime: Rip Dabs. <laughs> Don't be shy. <laughs> Uh, what about uh, boob groping <laughs> and um, panty shots? Come on, they're everywhere. Everyone's seen those. Um, it's worth mentioning that anime is not the only medium that sort of experiences this. It's the same that thing that occurs in sort of uh, Western films, comics, games. Um, you can see there like just a variety of um, different images from pop culture. Um, and, you know, sex does sell, and it's true of both genders, but communicated in different ways. And in saying that, you can have sexiness without objectification, and portraying images of an attractive human body is not the same as objectification, but it depends on how those images are portrayed to you. Um, and there's plenty of different uh, genres and styles in the anime world, uh, but it's common for those um, that are targeting a specific sex, so female or male, to stick to a particular format. So you've got your shoujo shows um, that are targeted at female audiences, um, and it might feature romance or bishy, um, pretty boys, um, such as Oran High School, Host Club, Black Butler. You've got your Magical Girls, Sailor Moon. Um, you've got shonen shows, which are typically aimed at young boys who might imagine themselves as a character and get the refer uh, referred thrill of their heroism. So sort of your Dragon Balls, your Naruto's, One Piece, etc. And then there are shows that are kind of designed a little more for the male gaze, such as Testament of Sister New Devil, High School, DXD, you know, the ones that feature the pretty large breasted females who often compete for the lead male's attention, um, and they're pretty fun. Um, but <laughs> I believe these content stereotypes are sort of a function of history, tradition, and cultural baggage. When um, as a distributor, when you're looking to acquire a title, you're probably going to feel safer putting your money behind a series that has followed a particular formula that's been tried and has worked before than something that's a little more experimental and you're, it's, it's harder to kind of guess where that's going to fall um, and you need to be safe um, and daring but also safe. <laughs> um, and most anime that's um, watched during midnight slots on Japanese TV are by males, and that generally means that more series are created for male audience as they tend to perform better in that time slot. Uh, so a lot of these are often fan service heavy shows that pander towards males. And speaking about that, fan service um, is a topic that's frequently discussed amongst anime fans. It's about servicing the fan, giving them exactly what they want, which is not necessarily sexual, although in some cases it may be. And there's a common misconception amongst Western anime fans that any and all fan service is bad. Um, and that's often the case when discussing moments when um, sort of things are 
inserted into an anime and it doesn't really have anything to do with the plot or the character development and it's usually very sexual. Um, this type of fan service is purely designed usually to turn viewers on and that usually interrupts the flow of a show and becomes distracting or out of place. So it's what a lot of people tend to complain about. Um, slide. Two shows that have received a lot of debate around fan service appropriation and feminist values are 2014 smash hit Kill la Kill and um, Keijo, a top performing simulcast that aired late year and it's a guilty pleasure of mine. Uh, both series feature strong, powerful women who aren't submissive to men and they don't rely on men to progress the plot, although at surface glance you probably wouldn't think this uh, due to the fan service in the series. Uh, just because... Um, uh, series is focused on strong female characters, it doesn't necessarily place it in the feminist category, but are these shows purely designed to service the desires of male fans, um, and are they objectifying women in a sexist manner? Let's discuss! <laughs> um, the first one I'm going to start off with is Kill la Kill, and for those of you who aren't familiar with that show, I'm going to introduce you with a short trailer. Subjugation is liberation, and you will all surrender to Sorry to interrupt, but I hear you're the queen bee at this school. I want to know if you're the one who killed my dad. How dare you get her! Out of my way! Don't you know a Goku uniform when you see one? Using the Goku uniforms as our weapons, we will carve a path to humanity's future. I'm sorry, father. If only I was strong enough, I'd beat it out of her! You should be careful what you wish for. Who's there? They're called life fibers. They're living fibers woven into clothing for combat. These special fibers enhance strength and reveal special abilities. Is Senkets one of those? The new girls come back. This time, I'm gonna knock you all on your asses! Let's do this, Senkets! Whoa, what's she wearing? How dare you put your school wearing that? I'm gonna rip that bikini to shreds! Impossible, 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 impossible! Okay, Satsuki Kiryui, did you or didn't you kill my father? Then I guess I'll have to beat the truth out of her. I can't wait. You were totally badass, all swinging that scissor blade around, dressed up like a hooker. Shit! And you can watch that series on AnimeLab.com and you can download the app on your iPhone. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> at first glance, Kill la Kill looks like another one of those shows that's designed purely for the male gaze. Uh, it's got voluptuous women fighting each other and revealing outfits, but uh, particularly to me, Kill la Kill is so much more than that. Um, I hope this works. Yeah. Um, the show is a coming-of-age story that features a girl, um, Ryuko Matoi, um, who's the main character. Um, it's a cross between Shonen and Shoujo, a little bit Sailor Moon, a little bit Gurren Lagann. Um, but one of the most conflicting parts about Kill la Kill is that it tries to show kind of some underlying feminist themes and ideas to presented towards a primarily male audience using imagery that depicts a female form in a very sexualized way. Um, it's very easy for fan service to dominate an anime series and detract from the story, but is it really all that bad in Kill la Kill? Kill la Kill starts off with lead character Riko Matoi looking for her father's killer. She's out for herself and she has a goal. She ends up wearing a magical talking sailor suit called Senketsu, which transforms into a revealing outfit and gives her the power to fight, but it leaves her body exposed. Um, this scene was enough to offend quite a few of 
uh, friends of mine um, and many people have refused to watch the show after seeing the magical garments that the two lead females wear. But could there actually be feminist values behind this? You got it! I finally get it now. I need to get naked. Putting on a Kamui means becoming one with you. It means you becoming one with me. That's what it means to master wearing you. Isn't that right, Zinkets? Yes, exactly. My favorite synchronized! When first wearing Senketsu, Ryuko is naturally embarrassed and she covers herself with a cloak, trying to hide from the gaze of onlookers who shame her. Senketsu then tells her that she won't be able to find the strength to defeat her enemies until she faces her fears and stops being ashamed of her body. This is a pretty empowering feminist idea. Ryuko also appears nude in that transformation scene, somewhat similar to Sailor Moon's transformation scene, although a little bit pushes that line a bit. Um, it's a sound effect, isn't it? Yeah, raw, that sound effect. I kind of wanted to mute it at that point. Um, I don't believe that it's meant to be sexy, though, despite the fact she is naked. Um, Senketsu is also referred to as her own skin, so it's more of a symbolic moment um, about bearing yourself, being comfortable with your own skin. She really embraces her femininity and <laughs> sexuality, not only as a weapon, but as part of herself. In addition to this, uh, Ryuko is shamed for wearing Senketsu by the disciplinary committee leader Gamagori. Um, he says that a lewd outfit will corrupt the other students and tries to punish her by moulding her into a model student wearing less provocative clothing. Oh wait, I was meant to do that after this. But yeah, there's a cool slide with a funny tweet. You have the sluttiest uniform I've ever seen! How dare you come to school wearing that! It's disgusting, it's deviant, it's depraved! What about your precious Lady Satsuki? Lady Satsuki's an exception! What?! Her iron will and well-trained body are ideal and make anything she wears noble and pure! Oh, come on! That's BS and you know it! My scissor! Oh, crap! <laughs> I finally rattled your cage! Now then, Ryuko Matoi, I'm going to mold you into shape! After I'm done with you, you'll look like a proper female student! Consider it a fresh start! And now, taste my robe! Go on, struggle, and reflect on your wicked ways! He's turning her into a human waffle! That's it! Yes, I will straighten you out! I won't stop until you're molded into a proper student! Do you want to win? What kind of question's that? Of course I want to win! This is a great reflection of the slut shaming that happens in our society, I think. Uh, Rico fighting against this is refreshing and empowering, a very pro-sex feminist idea centering on the idea that sexual freedom is an essential component of women's freedom. The Academy is headed by another strong female, student president Satsuki Kiryuin. She has her own goals and will do anything to achieve them. Exhibitionist. Nonsense! To unleash the most power, this is the form a Kamui must take! 
You cling to the puritanical views of the masses, proving just how inferior you are. But I won't be ashamed. If it means I can fulfill my ambitions, I will bear my breast for all to see. I will do whatever it takes, for I know that my actions are utterly pure. I think this quote stirs directly at the idea of girls being objectified with fan service. Her revealing outfit is a tool to her, and this is made very clear before she first wears Jonkatsu. Uh, and... Whoa, too far. It's uh, very easy to look at this show from afar and saying that it's objectifying women, which might render the show somewhat sexist. But the nudity in this series is also used as a plot device. In addition to this, practically everyone in the second half of the series is naked, even the background characters. In a way, Kill a Kill somewhat tr transcends traditional fan service to become something completely unique. Kill a Kill makes two big statements. Nudity is nudity, and it's not the clothes that you wear, but your ambitions and your actions that define you. The strong female cast and feminist messages in Kill the Kill really helped to balance out the revealing outfits and fan service. But would Kill the Kill still be able to serve its strong message without the revealing outfits? Possibly, but maybe not to the same effect. Now, moving on to Keijo, my guilty pleasure anime from last year. It's a comedy show and sports series that's full of extreme fan service. Here's a preview. So it's a little strange to be talking about topics like empowering women and then sort of playing Keijo, uh, but it is a, a, a series that I love. Uh, it's very fun and silly. Um, you kind of almost expect it to be the complete opposite. I mean, even the description of this event made reference to the female characters in Keijo being subjugated and designed purely for the male gaze. Um, Keijo is a series that follows female students who are training to become stars in the professional sport of Keijo. This is a women-only sport that mixes martial arts with attacking and defending balancing techniques. The aim is for the women to use their boobs and their butts to slam their opponents into the water. You must be the last woman standing uh, on the floating island called The Land to win. Um, it's somewhat similar to what you'd see in the Dead or Alive Extreme Games, and there's actually a Keijo collaboration, downloadable content where you can get the girls' swimsuits. But being a star in Keijo is actually one of the highest paid uh, positions in Japan, 
So it's a highly regarded sport. I was going to mention that it's a fictional sport, but since the series aired, fans in Portugal have worked hard to bring the sport of KJ to life, and the creator supported their idea. Unfortunately, they don't get paid like they do in the anime, so they might have to just keep trying. Gun butter. Um, in the series, the girls all work really hard to train their bodies and become better at the sport learning to work as a team and compete on a national level for fame and fortune. Uh, I love that Keiju portrays plenty of strong, smart and independent females. Um, each character is laid really well and they all have unique personalities and they all have their own goals and reasons for being Keijo stars. Keijo also supports uh, lots of different sorts of girls and body types. Not all women have large breasts and butts. Um, each girl uses her own body and brains to the best of her ability um, and quite strategically in a lot of the battles. And everyone here is on equal terms um, and no one pressures the girls into doing Keijo. And the outfits, they're not super revealing. Um, there are times where they become a little bit more revealing, similar to what you were talking about with Kantai Collection with the clothes explosion. So um, the main girl learns the vacuum butt cannon, which is an extremely awesome move. And uh, when she does it, um, uh, the girls' bathers kind of disappear. But beside the point, <laughs> uh, they, wear, they, they wear swimsuits, uh, kind of similar to what professional swimmers and divers and triathletes would do. Um, and I guess like the male characters in Free Iwatopi Swim Club probably show more flesh than what they do most of the time. Um, the tournaments are also incredibly intense and action-packed, and it's a really great example of portraying strong and diverse women who embrace their bodies while literally being about boobs and butts. So what really pushes Keijo over the line? Um, the series really made waves uh, in mainstream media after a Kotaku interview slammed the series taking fan service as its subject and not as a supplement to its subject. Um, there was an anime feminist article that had a different view on Keijo and mentioned that for fan service to be successful, it has to align with the audience's expectations. Uh, in my own eyes, this is a true sports series and not just an excuse for fan service. I'm not just saying that because I'm biased, because I'm a huge fan and I just... I want my favourite anime series to be pure forever. Um, but, you know, it, it does have fan service, and the two and two pretty much go hand in hand. I honestly can't imagine Keijo without the fan service, and it works in with the plot so well, um, it would just be really bland without it. When um, the girls of Keijo are using their boobs and their butts, it doesn't detract from the story at all. It actually enhances it. Keijo certainly emphasises uh, the fighting scenes um, over trying to arouse male viewers. But the creators know what, they want, what fans want to see and they're working it in with the story. That said, Keijo is also a comedy. But if the comedic elements of Keijo are somewhat a parody of typical fan service, does it render it immune to the uh, criticism of sexism? You may notice they're like a little, a little fate series. Here, <laughs> Gate of Booty Lawn. Uh, and they also study astro astronomy and boobology, um, some really good topics to learn about when you're partaking in Keijo because it's very serious. Um, final thoughts, uh, while these shows may feature some feminist ideas, is it still the same knowing that both these series were predominantly by men um, for a predominantly male audience? What if these shows were written by women? If anyone believes in equality, if anyone who believes in equality can be a feminist regardless of gender, could it be that these male creators are trying to challenge a predominantly male audience with somewhat feminist ideas? Could it be that some forms of fan service can be considered as empowering instead of objectifying depending on how it's used? Art has been and always will be a medium that's open to interpretation. So now I'm gonna leave it to you guys to continue the discussion. <laughs>
You're not getting out of it. <laughs> no! Thank you. Thank you um, <laughs> to both of you. Um, how are we going with time? I'm just... Good? Okay, great. Um, so, just following on with that, I thought since both of your presentation, in both of your presentations, you kind of talked about um, the hyper, um, I guess, feminization, but also sort of um, sexualization of these characters, and that um, sometimes having, you know, female characters that are strong and independent doesn't necessarily, you know, you know, mean that it is a feminist show and mm. then vice versa. Can you sort of expand a little bit more on that? I, I find it really interesting because of the way that, um, I guess, feminism in fictional works has been measured over time. So um, have you guys heard of the Bechdel test? Mm. And um, it's sort of been used, I think, 1980s? Yeah, 80s. Yeah, yeah um, to sort of determine um, if the show had inequality um, and how many females were being represented. Do you remember what the three, there were three oh, sort remember. of yeah, yeah. benchmarks? But yeah. um, it's interesting to note that both Kill a Kill and KJ passed this test, mm. so they would be true feminist works. Mm. Um, and, you know, that opens up to a lot of debate and should um, these uh, fictional series, should anime, um, can you apply a feminist lens to it? Mm. Um, and I think there, you certainly, it's good to discuss these things, but, um, yeah, it's, it's very hard to determine when you have such a mixture of um, different ideas. and Yeah, and I guess we're also kind of trying to have a very bold... Kind of, hmm. you know, discussion about anime, but but like we were all saying before that anime is such a, there's such a wide-ranging diversity in the hmm. kind of characters and shows for different audiences and different fans and um, in examples that we've all kind of put together, even within, you know, just between the three of us had yeah. such a completely different um, examples and different takes on yeah. what are those characters and, and, and how were they portrayed and if they were, you know, empowering or hmm. were they actually being objectified. I find it interesting as well because if you're actually really engrossed in the show and you look at it at different levels, so sort of how you were saying you're looking at some of the Kantai girls and thinking beyond just what's presented um, and like, you know, the types of ships and the costumes and that kind of thing. Um, it reminds me of when you're watching an anime series and a friend or a family member walks in and they're just like, oh God, what are you watching? That looks like <laughs> just porn. And it's like, no, it's anime. You don't understand. It's so good. And you try to explain yeah. it. They just don't understand it unless they also get into it. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I showed my parents Keijo on the weekend and their faces were just, <laughs> what are you showing me? And trying to explain how awesome it was and the, um, you know, the women and that they, they weren't just being objectified. It was very difficult. Yeah. Um, I guess um, <laughs> I forgot to ask you, when was the first time that you watched anime? Like how old were you and what did you think about it? Um, I'm not actually sure what age yeah. I actually was. Um, it would have been mid-junior school sort yeah. of level. Yeah. And I did, I did start off with a lot of um, shonen type series. Yeah. But the first time I really, really got engrossed, I mean, I think it's 
similar to you when you're talking about mm. Nana and um, about mm. following your dreams, mm. I really got hooked on um, Yu Yu Hakusho and Naruto. Mm. Um, and I was an athlete at the time and I just wanted to follow my dreams. So Naruto was like, yeah, no matter how, yeah. just keep trying. And like, I love those underdog series. Yeah. And I'm a huge fan of My Hero Academia. Um, <laughs> just side note. Um, <laughs> Yeah, uh, so it was really good because those shows sort of tell you to believe in yourself and keep yeah. trying. And sorry, I'm going probably off topic. I just oh, love no, no, Naruto. No. <laughs> I just because um, I'm really curious. Um, you know, like we we, you know, it's great to have a conversation about sort of feminist values and mm. how these shows are being understood or consumed and whatnot. And I'm just really curious in knowing um, sort of uh, did you like obviously. Both of you, maybe that you've, uh, when you first started consuming anime, there wasn't that critical lens when you were consuming, and mm. then it was only until later, and you look back, and because mm. that's kind of like how, that's kind of my personal experience with it, and it's really interesting that a lot of the things that that went into anime, obviously, you know, designed for, created for completely different audiences, would have had a completely different. Um, agenda behind certain characters and and how they you know what kind of messages they mm. they were there for, and that um, some of these examples that both of you have shown were kind of almost seems like they were for a slightly older audience that might be able to kind of pick up on those. Is it mm. you know is this a comment on you know fan service? Is it a comment on you know female body and and, and yeah. Hmm. Um, I, I, I think, again, there's the way in which you have the immediate identification with something like um, an anime or something that you then find a deeper personal connection with. And I think that's part of, um, um, you know, to me, it's like the start of then how you then um, can go into something like um, anime. Um, and I'm an advocate for, um, you know, uh, continually learning so that um, it's not as if there's kind of what you're, you're not saying, but there's the implication that, you know, you're a dumb young kind of kid and you're watching it on TV, you know, and then suddenly you go to uni or something like that or you do something comes mm. in your teenagerhood life and you say, like, oh, my God, there's something else kind of there kind of thing, right? Mm. Well, it's kind of like, yeah, okay, there's two little phases, you know, like let's keep the phases kind mm. of going um, to to really um, um, uh, foster some deeper criticality, right? Some way in which, like, okay, that's how I personally identified with it and now I can see these other things in it. So if that shift is kind of there for me, could there be other shifts that kind of keep kind mm -hmm. of going? Um, and so the, the thing that I, I'm personally kind of most probably concerned about is the idea of placing the self as the, the dominant central force that's then ascertaining what's happening in this anime? What does it mean to me? You know, what, you know, you know, what does it say to other people based on my kind of perspective? Um, and I think that's, how, that's a great foundation for then kind of figuring out everything that's complexly happening in anime. But I think then, we shouldn't forget that we're dealing with something from a completely other culture yeah. and that there are so many complex ways in yeah. which that kind of culture yeah. works that 
it's almost like the, 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 the guideline I use for myself is that everything I can't understand is what it's really about. Mm. The bits that I think I can understand, that's probably just scratching on the surface and it's not really kind of like mm. touching it. Right? And so what I mean by that is that, um, well, to give a more kind of social kind of concrete example, um, even though this is about anime and feminism, in Japan, anime is something that's right at the end of the line in terms of visual culture. Right? Mm. Manga culture is the most important narrative force in Japan. It always has been. Anime kind of comes in after manga. Now, what that means is, yes, everyone's watching anime when they're kind of growing up as kids, right? But the whole nature of a hand-drawn medium that uses intensely stylized hieroglyphic, like um, ideogram type approach to motion, movement, the body, and sort of things like this, right? That's rooted in an understanding for many Japanese people of manga itself, which is rooted in their ideogrammatic language base, right? We've got an abstract language base. They've got kanji and, and things like this that visually represents things. So the whole way of even identifying what is an object mm. operates very differently in that kind of cultural tradition. So what that means is that, and I've only found this over decades, that I might casually be talking with someone from Japan and they then sort of casually mention something that's like, oh my God, they've just said something that's an intensely deep understanding of what I was looking at in that manga, right? And they kind of knew this other whole mm. level of it in terms of its whole history of style, like the particular poetic tonality of what mm. the gag was based on in these things. So, like, you know, people might appear to just be speed reading mm. manga in Japan, but, like, it's like they're, they're like speed reading James Joyce's Ulysses, right? <laughs> they're really... We look at it generally, and I'm generalising, in a kind of like a... from a, a slightly detached kind of perspective. Mm -hmm. And the one thing I've learned, particularly from talking to all my Japanese friends and colleagues, is that all this density and complexity is right there in this compacted service, um, surface. Sorry. Service, too many <laughs> mention of the word service. So what that means is um, you read a lot about um, anal uh, analyses about um, manga and anime that's kind of like second year lit students at university who talk about the, the anime or the manga as if they're kind of dissecting a novel, mm. right? And like, yes, those themes are there and they're all there in the Miyazaki kind of mm. movies, right? But the dude's an animator, and he's completely looking at, you know, what does a body do as almost like a puppet, as a figurine and things like this, right? And so the complexity and density in something like an anime comes from the way in which it represents the body and, and mobilises it in a different way. Mm. So, for, so what that means is that manga comes in as its own commentary on the whole existing cultural mm. um, force of manga itself. Mm. So, you know, which and the thing is that that then changes once you get into games. Yeah, which is like know. it's the form that, that, that you're talking about. And I, I'm really curious about, I guess, the cultural translations that happen in that as we understand. Well, the one thing is to never watch anything with American dubbing on it. Yes, right? I I'm sorry, that. because that, like, just even, like, I've seen that um, um, subtitled, 
And then I'm looking at Dubbed and it's like, oh my God, I've gone to a lame outer Los Angeles stand-up comedian bar with 30 people with hack actors trying to make funny jokes. There are some really good English dubs though as well. And um, <laughs> you can watch more on Anime Lab. Yeah. Um, but you know, some people, like particularly Westerners, do enjoy watching their dubs because they can watch it. And um, like I know a lot of people that really hate reading subtitles because they don't like focusing on the two things at once. Um, but, you know, a lot of people, they might want to do their dishes or play a game while streaming anime in the side. Then that's... Yeah. It, it depends on how, how yeah. people consume <laughs> the, the medium, I guess. Um, but I do agree, like, there are some really shocking ones out there. Well, I watched, if, it's uh, okay, if it's okay to watch that, then it should be okay to watch a Turkish dub of Joan Campion's The Piano. <laughs> I watched the um, the English dub of Wicked City, um, oh, and that had the really that's the, like. The, you mean the British one? Oh, yeah, yeah. The British look, ones are even I worse than the American ones. I grew up on like X Files in Cantonese. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. On that note, I noticed yeah. that we're running out of time. Fantastic. Well, um, look, thank you all for attending. Can we please have a huge round of applause again for our guest tonight, Philip Brophy, <laughs> Jessica McCallum, and our host, Nikki Lamb. You've been listening to an Acme Conversations podcast. Visit acme.net.au for information about upcoming events, exhibitions and film screenings.